It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com and the mobile app. So glad you could tune in. Multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program, 973-667-1960. You could also use hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So obviously we're back up and running live. We will be able to take your phone calls throughout the course of the program. We will later on throughout the course of this offseason continue our opponent preview series. We focused a lot on that last week, and we will pick up on that point a little bit later on in the offseason as we continue to set the stage for the upcoming Giants regular season. Paul, how's everything on your end today? Doing well, Lance. How are you? I am doing very well indeed as well, and still a rather quiet time in the National Football League. But one of the things that we talked about actually last week, and now we've heard some feedback on that front, is there was this tight end university held. It was orchestrated by San Francisco's George Kittle, Greg Olson, who has since retired. Travis Kelsey was involved. There were about 50 tight ends. And the Giants had pretty big representation there because the essential tight end class for the Giants was involved in this first what they're hoping is an annual tradition where they get the tight ends together, they talk strategy, they work out, and so forth. And I know Levine Toilolo of the Giants had spoke publicly, and he, for example, said, quote, it's been awesome on and off the field with guys like Mercedes Lewis and Greg Olson who've been around it for a long time to get together, hang out, pick each other's brains, see what they see, and break things down is great. Is the first of its kind for tight ends. I got the invitation. It was pure excitement. It's something special, end quote. And it seems as if the positive feedback was felt around the league like that, where guys just were happy to interact with tight ends from all walks of life and talk over strategy and how they can improve and get better for the 2021 season. Look, Lance, this whole thing has become a trend now, from the quarterbacks having their own throwing coaches during the offseason to defensive ends and edge rushers, having pass rushing classes during the offseason, offensive linemen having schools and programs that they could go to during the offseason. So why shouldn't tight ends have them too? I mean, this, this is the way the league has morphed, and, and they've almost had to do it because the offseason programs are so watered down. They are so much like flag football. The training camps are as well. I mean – Look, if you're a pro and you really need to coach yourself up or, or have somebody teach you new techniques, where else are you going to go? And these, these schools and these programs are now fitting into that open niche at the different positions. And I, you know, I, I get it. I understand it. It's a shame that there's a need for them because if we had gone back to the olden days, there wouldn't be a need for these things. The teams and the players would be handling their own business during the offseason like they should. But that's not the way things are constructed with the CBA. And so these niche schools and programs and tutors and trainers are popping up all over the place. So why shouldn't the tight ends have one too? 
you could pretty much do it for every position if you really had individuals that were passionate about this. I think also this speaks volumes of the relationships across the NFL. There's a lot of tight ends that know each other from different teams. Same thing can be said for wide receivers and running backs. We talk about this when players are drafted and the connections that they have to other members of the draft class. Or there are players from opposing teams that work out together in the offseason because maybe they went to college together. So this, to me, is just an extension of that. And I think it's also an extension of, to your point, with limited interaction and workouts allowed during the offseason, most players take it upon themselves to work out amongst themselves. So the quarterback will get the wide receivers and the tight ends together and say, hey, come down to wherever is a convenient location Let's run some routes. Let's throw some passes. The defensive linemen may get together to work on things. This is a trend that we've seen over the last few years. So this tight end university, they've done an offensive line summit as well, is to me just players taking the initiative to say, hey, we could utilize some extra work that we're not allowed to do based on the CBA. So let's just do it ourselves. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the first ones to do it actually were the kickers. Uh, and punters many, many years ago, uh, you started to see former kickers and soccer players and guys who were coached in physiology uh, start working with the kickers. And that's why, you know, we've talked about this with Feagles, how they start developing these robo kickers and these robo punters all the way down into the high school levels. And they, they've been doing this now for, I don't know, maybe Jeff could pin it down for us, but I bet you it's been a good decade and maybe even longer that the kickers were the ones who really started this. And that's because, let's face it, I mean, even with the old CBA and the old off-season training that the teams used to have on campus, the kickers were still kickers. It wasn't a whole lot for them to do. Uh, so... Uh, they were the ones who originated it, and now it's spread out into the other positions. Let's see, who's left? I don't know that there are any running back schools. I don't know that I've seen any inside linebacker schools because the edge rushers are a totally different classification. They put them in with the pass rushers. So I haven't seen those. I don't know that I've seen any secondary schools. Maybe you have, but I haven't. And wide receiver schools, don't know that I've seen wide receiver schools either, although the quarterbacks often have their own independent passing camps with their wide receivers. So maybe exactly. that kind of qualifies as a pseudo school anyway. Well, and the Giants defensive backs got together too right. at some point this offseason. So I think we see that's more popular within teams as opposed to maybe across the NFL. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, look, here's the bottom line. I appreciate the fact that these players are at least taking the initiative to do something to make themselves better at their craft. That's the bottom line. If you're a professional and you're paid to do a job, shouldn't you do everything you possibly can to enhance your skill set? And, and, you know, so that's why, look, I, I, I'm critical of the system that has forced these things to pop up because they should have been done in-house by the teams, but the new CBAs won't allow it. So now it's got to be done a different way. So I encourage every player who has the opportunity to do whatever they can do during the offseason to do it because it's only going to help them and help their teams down the road. I think most players do have the initiative where they do work out on their own. It's just not necessarily publicized. 
you know, there's a lot of players in the NFL that have a great work ethic. They're just not broadcasting it to the world. So I think that's important to understand. Just because you don't get together in a group setting doesn't mean that maybe you don't have an individual coach or you have a family member or a former player that you've built a relationship with and you're just focusing on skills that you think are going to help you during the regular season. I think that happens a lot over the NFL. I think in terms of your last point, the reason why you can't have individual teams make decisions about what they can and can't do on and off the field is it's all about competitive balance, Paul. If you let teams make their own decisions, depending on how the players feel on their respective team, you're going to have one team that could work out for five straight months without any rules and regulations, and then you're going to have another team where the coaches trust the players and the players go off on their own. So I don't think the NFL wants to get in that position. And then, of course, the union is involved in terms of what could be regulated from the players' standpoint over the course of the offseason. Turn back the clock 25 years, Lance. That's my answer to a lot of things these days. But it is Well, but there weren't as many rules and regulations, though, 25 years ago, though. Competitive balance wasn't really a big emphasis, I would argue. It was a better game. Much higher quality. Well, you could argue it was a better game from your standpoint. But I don't think that there was enough regulation in terms of making sure that the league was equal across the board in terms of what teams were doing, though. That was lacking. Just well, like there was no, no salary cap. I wouldn't cap. say that. I mean, if, if I were to get Bill Parcells on the phone right now, he would tell you there were restrictions as to what he could and could not do. Uh, they had voluntary off-season programs to where the Giants used to have stipends uh, where they would say to a, a guy like Lawrence Taylor, they'd say, look, this is the deal, okay? We're going to offer stipends across the board. Every player who comes in, a minimum of three or four workouts during the course of the week is going to get a check mark. And every check mark you get, you're going to get a stipend for it. And, and that's how teams encouraged guys to do things during the voluntary periods that the CBA in those days allowed for. So it was up to you and your team if they voluntarily wanted to bond together and do what they do. Well, then guess what? You were probably going to have the benefits from it. And that's, that's what good teams did. That's what good coaching staffs did. That's what good players did. If you wanted to be lazy and you wanted to not do things and you didn't care about the little extra stipend or the extra team time that you could develop chemistry and develop a winning attitude, well, that was on you. And that's why teams like the New Orleans Saints stunk for a whole bunch of years because the bad teams were bad and the good teams were good. Well, you're talking about incentives. That's what you're essentially breaking down. Exactly. I mean, and so, you know, there were still rules and regulations. Don't tell me there weren't, Lance. I was there. They had rules and regulations. But I don't think they were as strict as what I'm saying, and there wasn't as much oversight. For example, I mean, there's video because the union wasn't as strong. Now, now they got everything clamped down, and they totally morphed the entire process. Well, no, I just think that there's a lot more oversight. For example, there's video of what teams do in practices so that Mm -hmm. teams don't violate union-negotiated rules. So, for example, if you see video of a team practicing and there's contact involved, there could be repercussions as a result of that. Something tells me back in the 70s and the 80s, they weren't filming practices for the league to review. No, no, no. That's my point. That was my exact But those exact teams point. and those players were a heck of a lot better prepared for the season from the get-go, and you had a lot higher quality of football from week one through the end of the regular season. And that's well, just a fact. That's just the Well, and is. also safety has become a more prevalent topic, though, now, too. Times that's have drastically changed. Right, look, I, yeah. I know Carl Banks and I have had this discussion many, many times, okay, and that is 
it was it was getting a little out of hand at times with some coaches who were drilling a little bit too much. And there's no doubt that they needed to pull the reins back on certain guys at certain times. So what they should have done was found a much happier medium so that they could have kept much of the old school stuff but just had certain limitations and certain tweaks that would have regulated it better. That's what they should have done. Instead, they went to the extreme in the other direction, and this is what we have today. Well, that's why it's up to players and teams to adapt, and I think we've seen that, actually, from a big-picture perspective this offseason because you've had teams, some of them just scrapped mandatory minicamp, and they said, hey, we're going to focus three straight weeks, we're going to emphasize our workouts, and then we will let you guys break, and then you'll return for training camp. Some teams made those decisions where everybody didn't have a mandatory minicamp this offseason, They left that up to the teams to negotiate based on the fact that teams are obviously still dealing with COVID and it's not a 100% normal offseason. Look, the protocols of the COVID thing is a totally different animal. And and the last two seasons or offseasons of 2020 and 2021 are totally different from anything that we could discuss from, let's say, the mid-90s up until today. Totally different animal. I mean, the COVID thing is just the most unique set of circumstances that any of us had to deal with. Well, this also, though, brings up an interesting question about if a player during voluntary OTAs does want to work out by himself in his local community, wherever he resides, which is not necessarily in the vicinity of where the team is located, if he's doing his due diligence to stay in shape and staying in communication with the team— I don't necessarily think that that's detrimental to the well-being of the team in the long run. And I think we've seen a lot of that with players at all positions where they're on top of things. They communicate with the coach. It's not like they're just going out on their own island, but they just feel as if they can benefit more from being in their own comfort zone and work out with a trainer on a consistent basis. Because here's the other thing that I think we have to understand. When you have 90 guys in camp, it's hard for one coach to pay attention in close detail to every single individual on the roster. So some players feel, I'm going to get more out of that by myself. Have you seen them? The sizes of the coaching staffs today? Come on, man. Well, not everybody has the same uh, exact staff. Most most staffs in the NFL have a slew of guys now. Assistants upon assistants upon assistants. Holy moly. Are you kidding me? When I started covering this game, you had the two coordinators, then you had a couple of position coaches on each side, and that was it. I mean, come on now. They've got a whole schoolyard full of coaches. There's almost as many coaches out there as there are players. Of course, I'm exaggerating, but it's it's become totally out of hand because everything is so specialized. And the truth of the matter is, one of the reasons you probably need that many coaches is because you can't properly train the players because the rules won't let you anymore. So now you need more coaches to have to micromanage things. Hey, well, and it is what it is, man. What are you going to do? Of course. Well, well, listen, times have changed, Paul. I mean, I, I could tell you want to hold have. on to 30 years ago. There's no they doubt have. about it. We could get that I, sense. Times have definitely changed. Doesn't but mean it's good better. teams adapt, is my point. Well, they, good they teams have to. adjust. If yeah. you don't, you violate the rules. Well, but players also, I think, have adjusted and adapted. And I don't think there's anything wrong if a player lays out to a coach, hey, 
this is what I want to do in the offseason. I'm year five into the league. I feel based on my strategy and my schedule, I get more out of working with this individual in California as opposed to going cross country. As long as everybody's on the same page, I don't think that hurts the team in the long run. That's what I'm getting at. And I think we're seeing more and more of coaches at least understanding that, that as long as the player is communicating and we're both staying on top of things, and they show up for training camp or mandatory sessions, we could get through the offseason. You know what's really funny about this thing, Lance? And I know we want to get to our phone calls, and I will let you do that right after this uh, final comment. And that is a lot of these positional schools or positional training uh, sessions that are done during the offseason are being run by guys who played 10, 15, and 20 years ago. Don't you and they know see a thing or two about, about the game. Yeah, and and that's and, and, is it any coincidence? No, it's not because those guys know the way the game was supposed to be trained and it was supposed to be taught and it was supposed to be handled, and those guys are trying to bring some of the old school stuff back through some of these schools in addition to the new technologies and the new physiological programs that they've got because they've they've got all of these new scientific things that tell you about different parts of the body and measurements and blah 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 but they're what they're trying to do most of these things they're trying to get a lot of old school stuff available to the new players who are willing to take the time and the effort to go see them during the offseason And that should tell you a whole lot about the value of what old school is all about. Well, and remember, old school can be interpreted very differently because, I mean, there are some players that have turned into coaches that played well beyond what you're talking about. I mean, there are some guys, think about it, you could have been in the league in 2001, 2002, and you're now coaching the new generation of players. That's not so old school when you think about it. Well, a lot yeah, of time but those guys, by. what were they trained and brought up on? They were brought up, a guy who played in 2000, 2001 was brought up and trained on stuff that happened in the 90s because those were his formative years. So in truth, it is still old school. Well, anytime you could learn from a previous player who's been there and done that, I mean, that's a benefit, regardless of what generation they've played in. I think that all players should welcome that. When you could hear from somebody that's gone through the schedule of an NFL season and knows the ins and outs, I would say that's beneficial no matter how you want to spin it. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, 973-667-1960, hashtag Giants Chat. Let's open up the phone lines. We got Jason in New Haven. He joins us. What's happening, Jason? Hi, right, fellas. How's everybody doing? Hi. Doing all right. What's on your mind? Thanks for taking my call. Um, glad to hear you guys' voices again. Last week, you guys were off. So um, I'll make three points, and I'll try to make it quick so everybody gets a chance. Um, I was talking to some friends, Giants friends of mine uh, over the week. Uh, I know the Steelers had um, – cut uh david DeCastro and they signed um trey turner they signed trey turner yes yeah. um and you know i've been hearing some other callers like hey why are we signing signing this player that player so on and so forth and i guess my issue with that is is that it doesn't take into account last year due to the shortened pre well we didn't really have a preseason um the giants the young giants o-line had an incredible high level of difficulty last year. Um, not just that they were rookies, but okay. If you look at if you look at the teams that we played, um, I think eight teams on PFF were like 
six of the lot six of the defensive lines were like top eight PFF grades, like the Steelers, Rams. I mean, I can go down the smorgasbord of who Thomas had to go in week week in and week out as a rookie left tackle. Same thing with Lemieux. I'll even count Gates as his first year. So I'm just saying this to say this. I think fans need to just give this line some time. Evidently, Judge in the front office really believes in this line. They're with them every day. Um, so I think, you know, fans just need to give it some time. Now, you know, um, changes can always be made to the roster going forward, just like we did last year with Logan Ryan. Maybe a, maybe a really good lineman breaks free and, the Giants say, hey, we probably need him on our roster. But I think for now, I think fans just need to take some time and say, hey, let's, let's let them go through a preseason, a, a rookie, um, a mini camp. Let them put on pads and let them build um, continuity. So that was my first point. I don't know if you guys had anything to say about that. But. Well, you're very logical. I mean, where would the Giants have been in 2007 had they not given guys like David Deal and Richie Soybert an opportunity to play? And right. Chris Snead. And, and, you know, I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves. A veteran doesn't get to be a veteran unless he plays. Right. Right. Well, and I think the offseason showed, based on what Dave Gettleman said, that they have faith in this young group of offensive linemen, and they're going to do everything in their power to develop them and give them opportunities. If you're going to bring in a veteran who's going to take away reps and opportunities from the young guys, you're not doing your due diligence in developing them. So I think every team has a different philosophy. That's why you can't say, well, why did the Steelers do this? Well, the Steelers also parted ways with a guy that has to undergo ankle surgery and David DeCastro, who was a six-time pro bowler, and their needs are different than the Giants. The Giants don't have a guy that needs to undergo ankle surgery. They're developing a young offensive line. The Steelers have relied on veterans more so in recent history, and they brought in Trey Turner via visit. I'm sure they spoke to see whether or not it made sense. It was a good fit, and that's the direction they went in. So I don't really think you could pair one team to another because every team is operating under a different philosophy. Right, right. Okay, and two more points, and I'll make it quick. Um, I remember I called maybe maybe – two, three weeks ago about Daniel Jones, and one thing I wanted to see was him making maybe more plays off the platform. Um, another thing that I want to talk about with Jones is um, I am a, I am a big believer in Daniel Jones. I think he has the tools to make it and be that big-time quarterback for the Giants that we need. Another thing I do want to see him do, watching the games last year and um, just watching some film, um, like I said, I'm not a coach or a scout, but just from watching um, – he makes very good like pre-snap reads, and he seems to really understand the concept of the play. Um, what I think he and you guys can let me know. You guys see him more in person than I do. Is he's not really good at post-snap early reads. Like if the play if the play doesn't go as designed, and maybe a defensive back or a linebacker rotates, and his first read isn't there, he tends to kind of stay too long in the pocket with the ball, and that's why I think he takes a lot of those big shots and those strip fumbles and strip sacks, um, and that's something else I want to see. Like, he doesn't process quickly. Um, and in the NFL, you know, it's not only being cerebral, but you got to have to have a feel as a quarterback. You know, um, Andrew Thomas can have a great rep, but if you're holding on to the ball a little too long and you get sacked, now everybody's blaming Andrew Thomas or Lemieux or Soldier or so on and so forth. So that's another thing I want to see from Daniel. And then the last point, and I'll take it off the air, the D-line, um, I'm a big Dexter Lawrence fan, same with Lenny Williams. Um, 
the to me, I think one of the most underrated signings that people aren't talking about. I know everybody's talking about Galladay and Jackson and, you know, those kind of guys, which are big signings. But to me, the Danny Shelton signing was a really low-key, underrated move. Now, I'm not comparing Shelton to Tomlinson because if you look at the market, the market dictated that, hey, Tomlinson, quote-unquote, was a better player because he got paid probably three times as much as Shelton. But what I find funny is sometimes fans will complain about how much money a team will spend. Um, but they had no problem if the Giants had to pay Thomason ten to twelve million dollars as a nose tackle. And while he's a very good nose tackle, he's a nose tackle. You know, sometimes you can find those guys in the draft or low tier free agents to kind of fill that role. And uh, to me, Shelton's a big key. I think he's going to start at the nose. The D line is going to rotate. But to me, ten to twelve million for Thomason, which he has been a great player. Um, a great ambassador for the Giants while he was here. I'm sure he'll do that in Minnesota. To me, Shelton can provide some of that play in terms of taking a blockers and um, a good run defender. Um, so I kind of wanted to see what you guys thought about the Daniel Jones thing with the post read and, and Shelton versus Thomas in terms of you know money and what they're going to bring to the field. And I'll take it off the air. Hi, Jason. Appreciate the phone call. Well, in terms of Daniel Jones, Paul, I think we've talked a lot about this during the course of the offseason, the fact that when you hold on to the ball a little too long, you put yourself in a position where you are going to take some extra hits and you're going to give the defense an opportunity to create some turnovers. So to me with Daniel Jones, and I think we saw improvement in this in the latter part of the season, it's a matter of, and maybe more so this season and moving forward, even if things break down based on what you saw before you snap the ball, just throw it away and live to see another down. There's no crime in if it's second and six and you have no play, throw it away and then live to see third and six. You don't have to make a play on every single down in the NFL. It's better if you protect the football and preserve your team's opportunity to hold on to the ball and carry that on. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's difficult for most quarterbacks to accept because they strive for perfection like anything else. But I think that would probably be one area that I would point to. Throw it away. It's not a matter of how you read it. It's just don't even try to play hero ball. Move on to the next down. Well, I think you're right to some degree, Lance, but I think you've, you've missed the point on this one. I think the, the point of this is that when we talk about a quarterback's instincts, you can't really tell exactly where his feel is back there until you know what it was that he expected to see, when he expected to see it, and how did the players around him give him what he was supposed to get so that he can have confidence that he can pull the trigger or tuck it down or look off to the next guy. It's too complex to just say what you said. What you said is just too simple. It is a spider web that goes far beyond that, and I don't think we truly know exactly what Daniel Jones's uh, post-snap read comfort zone is yet because he has not been allowed to play under satisfactory conditions. He had an offensive line that during the first half of the year last season uh, had a tremendous amount of problems. We have uh, defenses across the line of scrimmage from him that are allowed to cheat because they don't necessarily respect the run game enough, although it got better during the second half of the season. You've got defenses that don't respect the Giants' running back core to help out in pass protection. So let's just say Daniel Jones goes back to throw, and he believes he's got three reads, right? 
and he's looking for his first, his second, and his third reads. And while he's doing that, he's supposed to have the appropriate protection up front, and he's supposed to have the running back who's going to pick up the guy who leaks through. Well, guess what? The running back doesn't pick up the guy who leaks through, and all of a sudden, Daniel Jones winds up either having a run or get sacked or do something dumb with the ball because the entire situation broke down around him and didn't give him what he was supposed to get. And so he's not he doesn't have, at least to this point, he has not had enough of favorable conditions based on what he's being promised at the line of scrimmage coming out of the huddle to make a concrete judgment as to where his processing ranks. I suspect this year, with a much better offensive line that is supposed to be gelling more and supposed to be more experienced, if they do as advertised what the Giants believe they're going to do with that offensive line, okay, and they've clearly got better receivers. They've got a a tight end in Kyle Rudolph now to add to the mix. We're talking about terrific route runners who can get open, who have the smarts to understand what they're supposed to do, who know that when Daniel Jones throws the ball, they're going to hold on to it. Galloway's going to hold the ball. Rudolph's going to hold the ball. They're not going to tip it up and get it intercepted. They're not going to run the wrong route and get it picked. They're not going to wind up with an incompletion on the other side. They're going to make plays for their quarterback. Now that Daniel has these things at his disposal, that's what this offseason was about, Lance. It was about making sure that Daniel Jones has not only the tools, but also the confidence and the comfort zone to operate as a high-level quarterback should. If he doesn't, then we know that there is something inherently wrong with Daniel Jones. But to this point, we can't say that because he has not had the appropriate tools to, uh, to reach the level and the standards that a good quarterback is supposed to have. So it's a much wider spider web than the picture that you paint or, the, or what the caller is trying to paint. Well, I wasn't trying to make a judgment about him. All I was saying is a concept which holds true for any quarterback, is when a play does break down, for whatever the reason is, you have the option of throwing the ball away to avoid any miscommunication or a turnover. That's what I was really pointing to, that it's something that every quarterback sometimes struggles to digest because they always want to create something out of nothing, even when the play breaks down. But sometimes the okay decision is just throw the ball away. And don't even think about it. We and saw him yes. do that better this past season. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. Well, I said on it a, the second a, half on of the season. a simplified scale, I agree with you, and I do think he showed improvement in that area. Yeah, and that's exactly what I said. I okay. thought in the second half of the season. I'm just taking it to a whole nother level, that's all. Yeah, but the other thing is the reason why I can't take it to a whole other level, in order to break down and have a serious conversation about Daniel Jones or the caller's point about post-read, you'd have to know what everyone is expected to do on every single play. Right. You'd have to know the play so in order to determine whether or not Daniel Jones indeed is making a good decision or a bad decision. If you don't know the play and you don't know what everybody else did on the route, who's to say that Daniel Jones made a bad decision? Maybe it was on the tight end. He was in the wrong spot. Daniel released the ball at the perfect timing. The tight end wasn't in the spot where he should have been. As a result, it was a turnover. So is that on the quarterback or is that on the positional player? Well, that's why I I really do believe that the outsiders who do not watch a guy play in and play out and do not have the chance to talk to the coaches or talk to the players all the time, 
those are the people who are going to be, let's just say, more erroneous in their opinions than others because they don't have the educated eye or the opportunity to find out and research, okay, what happened on that interception last week? Oh, the guy was a hot read. Never saw it. Okay, we can do that to some degree, even with the pandemic and the protocols that have suffocated a lot of our, our availabilities and our contact with these guys. We still do have something that we can chew on. A lot of folks outside the bubble don't. And so you're right. They're not going to have the opportunity to do that. So it's our responsibility to tell them that, hey, there are a lot of factors that you cannot possibly know that go into this. So don't make assumptions based on 5% of the information. And that's the problem. They tell you all the time, a little bit of knowledge is very dangerous. you got to know a heck of a lot more than what most fans see on television. Limited Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. The other point that was brought up was Dalvin Tomlinson versus Danny Shelton, and actually Paul and I brought up this very topic on a show last week. I forget which day it was, but if you recall, Paul, we had a very detailed conversation about what happens when you take Dalvin Tomlinson out of the equation and how do you make up for that, and we went into the statistical analysis. So I don't want to necessarily have that conversation all over again. I suggest if you're interested, go back. It was on one of the shows last week. We spent a very nice portion on the back end after our interview. And what I will say, though, in a generic sense, just to sum this up to the last caller's question— Every team is going to assign value to a specific player. When you start throwing around, is a nose tackle worth 10 to $12 million? Some teams are going to say, yes, he's worth that type of money because of what we ask that player to do within the scheme. Or it may be one of those nose tackles that also has the ability to get after the quarterback, for example, like an Aaron Donald for the perfect poster child at this point, but Aaron Donald is so unique that you're not going to find any other guys that compare. Aaron Donald, you're willing to give X amount of dollars because you're not going to take him off the field and you know he's going to give you things that go above and beyond the nose tackle. If you're only keeping your nose tackle on the field, Paul, for first and second down, and he's mainly a run stopper, and you have player A, B, C, and D to pay, then yes, you have to make a tough decision. You have to ask yourself, are we getting enough bang for the buck with 10 to $12 million a year? So every team's going to answer that question differently depending on how they utilize that player within their scheme. Well, this goes back to John's uh, production per dollar, you know, which I love it, PPD. I love that phrase that John came up with, and he's right. And by the way, we had that in-depth conversation on Tomlinson on the show that uh, previewed the Denver Broncos on June 21st. Uh, Big Blue Kickoff Live. So that was the last, last 10 Monday. minutes of the show. Yeah, we, we did a very deep conversation on Dalvin Tomlinson's value to the Giants. Now that he's gone, what they had to do to replace him and what Danny Shelton may potentially bring to the table. And I think when you look at production per dollar, they probably will not suffer a whole heck of a lot. When you grade it on that curve, 
I think it's reasonable to expect that, that they'll do pretty well there. Now, again, he's not the same player. Uh, I think the other thing to keep in mind here, Lance, you're right. There are teams that say, look, this player is worth this much based on market value, based on his stats across the board against a guy at his position on other teams and around the league. There's no doubt about that. But there are also teams that will say, listen, we have a positional value assigned to a nose tackle. We have a positional value assigned to a strong safety. And they'll say, look, we're not going to spend more than X number of dollars on that position because we think in the scope of things with the way we play defense and with our scheme, this guy is not nearly as important by position as opposed to this position and that position and this other position. So, therefore, it's not always necessarily a money value or a dollar value that is assigned to the player. Sometimes it's simply assigned by position, and we're going to say, you know what, the defensive tackle room, the guys who play nose tackle, well, we're going to keep a starter and we're going to keep a backup, and between those two guys, they're only going to make X number of dollars, and that's what we're going to do. And, and, and sometimes it's really that simple. As far as Danny Shelton, you're talking about a guy that's 6'2", 345. Blake Martinez actually joked earlier this offseason that he's so big that he could hide behind Danny Shelton <laughs> during the course of a game because Shelton takes up so much space. So I think in terms of having somebody that could come in, do the dirty work, they did find really good value in free agency. And if you look at his tackle numbers, his tackle numbers are not too shabby when he's been a guy that has been in the lineup for anywhere from 14 to 16 games. So time will tell, but I think you also need to take into consideration they're probably going to rely on other personnel on third down in passing situations, and that's also a big part of estimating the value and how much you want to invest in the player. Let's reopen up the phone lines here as we move along on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, 973-667-1960. Charlie's in Portland, Maine. What's happening, Charlie? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul. Oh. If uh, if a little knowledge is dangerous, how about no knowledge? <laughs> oh, well, unfortunately, Charlie, <laughs> you actually hit that one right on the head. How ironic is that that you should come up with that phrase? Well, Charlie, you should know from experience, so why don't you tell us what it's like to have no knowledge? <laughs> hey, look, Paul, I, you know, I was back down. I was there in 1985 and even before that. But in 1985, it was a 1% league. That means only 1% of the teams were always winning. It was the same four, five, six teams. Nowadays, you've got a 60% league. 60% of the teams can actually win, and it will be different every year. They can go from last to first. Actually, I think it's a better league now because of that, unless you were one of the 1% teams who always won, like Dallas and San Francisco and the Giants once in a while, but it's a better league now. It's, it, it, it makes more money. There's more fans. It, I mean, it's, it's better than 1985, and I understand what you're saying, you know, the quality of play, but it's a different game than it was back then. This is, this is like a passing league. This is, you know, gadgets and bombs and all that kind of stuff, whereas the other, you know, back then it was more run, run in play action and stuff like that. But you got to look at it that way, Paul. It is a better league because 60% of the teams or maybe even 70% of the teams are can be in it every year, whereas before it was four or five, the same teams every year. 
Well, Charlie, let me put it to you this way. You, you, you kind of glossed over the fact, even though you agreed, that the quality of play is not the same. And that's always been the biggest issue for me. I'm a big, big believer in the quality of play. But just to be factual about this, let's go through the decade of the 80s, and you will notice that the following teams won Super Bowls. The Steelers, the Raiders, the 49ers, the Redskins. Have you heard a repeat yet? No, no, you haven't. Uh, Raiders, there's one repeat. 49ers, two repeat. Bears, Giants, Redskins, and Niners. So the Niners did. So during the decade, the Redskins had a repeat, the Niners had a repeat, and the Raiders had a repeat. So you had three teams, right? You had three teams. teams, You had three, right? Basically. Right, right, right. But that's not 1% of the league. Well, that's close. What I'm saying is, like, is look it? at it now. Well, except for the Patriots. you got to, like, they're the outlier, of course. Well, the, you know, the, the Patriots you know. screwed up everybody's <laughs> mathematics because Belichick decided to create a dynasty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, I mean, if you look in the play in the Super Bowl or in the championship games, it wasn't the same four or five or six teams. It was always somebody different, except for the Patriots, basically. It was always somebody else. Patriots played the Rams. The Patriots played Philadelphia. The Patriots played the Giants twice. Well, even the teams that lost the Super Bowls, though, in the 80s, Charlie, the Rams, the Eagles, the Bengals, the Dolphins, I didn't repeat anybody there. And and later on in the second half of the decade, yeah, Redskins, Dolphins, Patriots, Broncos. I mean, look, I, I, I do agree with you. That there were there were more um, there there's no there's no question the Rubik's cube is mixed up more today than it was in those days. I agree with you right. in that regard. There's no way not to, but it wasn't nearly as exclusive as people want you to believe. There were still variables. There were still teams and variable teams making it to the championship games and to the Super Bowls. It wasn't as varied as it is today, but the quality of football more than offset that issue as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think the big benefit was you were able to retain players and you were able to build cores. It's hard to do that in today's NFL. That, to me, is the biggest difference. For example, the San Francisco 49ers had Joe Montana and Steve Young on the roster. Can you explain to me how a team is supposed to do that, to have Joe Montana and Steve Young on the same roster in today's NFL? Nobody could pay for that. That's impossible. So, you know, that to me is the biggest difference, Paul. The fact that the economics allowed you to keep the core of your rosters together, and therefore you could remain competitive for a lot longer than you can do today. With that, all due to respect, me, Lance, I've been singing this song since the early 90s, so I don't think you need to explain Plan B, Paul. No, I'm not trying Plan to explain. B. I'm just I'm adding just another layer to what the two of you were going back and forth with. It's, I think it's, it's more really, the economics. It, 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 yeah, it's it, the, the CBA, but more importantly, not only the CBA, but free agency. The way that they handled the free agency when the court struck down the NFL's free agency plan, Plan B, which was sensational and the best way to regulate this league, and it got knocked down in the courts as an antitrust because the players' union went after them, and and they they just sent the whole thing into a tizzy, and it's never been the same since. Anyway. Okay, guys, thanks for taking my call. And all right, Charlie. I'll talk to you all later. Yep. 
I can't blame players if they want to be able to test the market and make as much money as possible. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in life. I think anybody in any other industry would like to have free market opportunities to make money. So I just think that it arrived in the NFL, just like everywhere else in industry across the U.S. But when you see seven or eight new teams make the playoffs in today's day and age, that I think goes home to the last point that Charlie was making, which I agree with, which is the fact that there's much more turnover in today's NFL. What I would be interested to go well, back there are and more look teams too, Lance. To be of fair. course, well, there was expansion. No, but what I think there is a better statistic. So you know, what that, I think is a better statistic yeah. than who made the Super Bowl because you're really honing in on a small sample size. It'd be better to look at in the '80s how many different teams consistently made the playoffs. That, to me, is a better indicator, Paul, Okay, but than, that's per a reward, se, who made the Super Bowl. But that's rewarding your GMs, your scouts, and your coaching staffs for developing players that they can say, you know what, we took this guy as a rookie, and we made him something. I mean, look, you think Phil Simms would have been around to win the Super Bowl for the Giants in 86 after he was drafted in 79 if we had all of these salary cap regulations and free agency rules in? No. There's no way. Sims would have been gone before the 86 season. He never would have been a giant all the way until that Super Bowl 21. He would have been gone. So, well, I mean, you know, Lawrence Taylor? What, are you kidding me? You think Lawrence Taylor would have spent his whole career with the Giants and won two Super Bowls? If they had all of these other rules in there with free well, if they prioritized investing in Lawrence Taylor, I don't think it's crazy to see him spend his entire career. There's guys that could do that in today's NFL. It's it's If you value hard. Lawrence Taylor, you're going to tell me the Giants wouldn't have all paid right. him? All right, all right. Maybe they would have been able <laughs> to hold on. on to Lawrence, but they certainly wouldn't have been able to hold on to Carson and Banks and Leonard Marshall and the rest of the guys. Well, because they may the, have not the, been able to retain the all those guys. rules are designed to blow things up today. That's what it's all about. Well, but I guess what you're arguing, though, is you don't want players to have an opportunity to test the market. That's what my interpretation is, Paul. Oh, too bad. Too bad. I'm into unity. I'm into developing. I'm into team first more than individuality. It's, well, that's fine. Look, 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 I don't we, disagree. We talk about you, you should how football, be in for the team. But we wait a minute. We talk about Hold how on. football's a team game, right? And, okay. and coaches are supposed to develop players. Scouts go get these prospects. They're not ready-made for the NFL, and then they're supposed to develop them. And if we tell you that a player is supposed to break out in year three, well, gee, free agency it comes so quickly after that. How are you supposed to hold on to a guy after you've given everything you could to make him the player that he is? And then he goes and flaps his wings and flies away. Well, Look, you could argue that sometimes is on the team for not being patient enough with a guy. We could talk about this for the next 30 years, Lance. You're yeah. on one side of the fence. I'm on the other side. You're not going to bend, and neither am I. So it's pointless well, to even I'm discuss not having this conver- But see, Paul, see, I'm not having this conversation to get you to come to my side. We can have a conversation where two people have different perspectives, and we just talk, and we give our perspectives. Well, yeah, and I, I, and I, and you, the I way you're agree. viewing this conversation is we have to have a winner. Somebody has to give. That's oh, no, not no, how life no. works. I can totally agree to disagree with you on this. I like, I like apples. You like oranges, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's sure. perfectly fine, that's, well, and that's fine. All I was going to bring up was I can't fault a player if they say, 
I've spent four years in the league. I've put up these numbers. My team doesn't want to pay me X amount of dollars, but three other teams want, and I have an opportunity to make more money. You're going to tell me in your industry here in broadcasting, if I talk to a chef and they had an opportunity to go and talk to 75 other restaurants that were willing to pay them more money, you would fault that individual for being able to capitalize on their value? I just I don't understand well, that philosophy. Well, no, no, you, and you're you're simply saying that a a person has the right to maximize their opportunities under the rules that have been presented to them, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I understand it. My complaint is with the structure of how it's been set up. My complaint is not that a player would go and take a deal somewhere else. Of course, of course. Why wouldn't he take advantage of the rules if they are bent into his favor? I get it. I get it. From a structure perspective, I don't like it, but you can't blame the guy. You know, I can't blame Dalvin Tomlinson for taking the deal with the Vikings. Exactly. Yeah. It's a much better deal personally for him. There's nothing wrong with him taking that deal. Justin Tuck took a deal with the Raiders several years ago. You know, Linval Joseph took that deal with the Vikings several years ago. A guy gets a deal that blows him out of the water. How is he going to turn that down? He's got to go. The problem is the structure that allows that deal to be offered in the first place. That's the problem. Well, but you could argue if that structure is not in place, then they don't get those opportunities, Paul. <laughs> so which is it? You want them to be able to capitalize and make money that could change their individual and family lives. But if you don't have the structure in place and you're not giving them the freedom, then they don't have the chance to make that money. So which one's going to give then? I think this salary cap system is a compromise of both. You're affording players the opportunity to cash in if they could find a team that's willing to pay them X amount of dollars. But at the same time, you're also, hold on, let's not dismiss the fact that the franchise tag gives a team the power to retain one of their most critical players, okay, so they can't hit free agency. The NBA doesn't have a franchise tag. Okay, they've got the ah, Larry but they Bird, have Bird rights. Okay, yes, but what I'm saying is every league doesn't have the flexibility to say you have all the protections in your power to make sure that you're not going to lose your guy. So the NFL at least gives teams the flexibility to do that. So that, I think, is a compromise. Okay? I would love to see the NFL adopt the bird right structure, okay, to where because the NBA only has, what, 13 guys on a roster and the NFL has four times as many? Oh, there's far more personnel, correct. Okay, so how about every NFL team has four bird rights players that they can blow out the cap if rights. they want to for four superstars on their team. I don't think that would help the NBA's case. See, the NBA has a bigger problem than the NFL, Paul, because in the NBA, you could argue it's like the 80s in the NFL, where there's really only about four or five teams, with the exception of this year, which we're pleasantly surprised. We actually have some new faces, which is nice and refreshing. But more often than not, you really know the four or five teams that have a legitimate shot to win a title before the season starts. The NFL, I can't say that. So if you're talking about bird's rights in the NBA, four for every team, you would never have star players be able to leave and change teams. And that would emphasize more of a dynasty for the four or five teams. I'd completely be against that. I would not be in favor of that at all. And I think NFL. it's perfect that there's and one the NFL, rights. when you have a 53-man roster. For the NFL, if you want to add a bird's rights player in addition to the franchise tag, I have no problem with that. That's what but, I'm saying. I'm, I'm okay, saying well, I was interpreting that I'm you were campaigning that I'm for the NBA. That's the why. NBA has one bird rights player per team for, what, a 13-man roster, right? 
Yeah, about 15 so, guys. So, on all right, so, yeah. so if the NFL has approximately four times more guys on a roster, why don't we have bird rights to where you can go over the cap with no penalty for four NFL players per team? Why shouldn't you be able to do that? It works well, in the NBA. I still think four is high, but I could give you one or two. I'll buy that. Four is a lot, though, because you're talking about four. Think about this, Paul. If you were to implement your rule, if I say I'm going to go above and beyond the cap to retain the rights of I could keep my quarterback, I could keep my best defensive pass rusher, I could keep my best cornerback, and I could keep maybe, I don't know, my best offensive lineman if you want to rank those as the four most I important love positions. I yeah, love it. Well, of course you love that. But that's ridiculous from the player's perspective and also their ability to be able to test free agency after a certain amount of time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But bird rights doesn't, doesn't limit that guy's ability to make money. No, because bird you're allowing Wright the team says, to go over the cap. I get bird it. Wright I understand. Says, right. But I can, even I, if, if you're allowing them to the go guy, over the I cap, can. even if you're allowing them to go over the cap, that doesn't mean that that team is going to go as far as – Three other teams are willing to go, though. Okay, well then, free but, okay, but then the guy, then the guy can go. Well, no, I'm if not, you're placing bird rights on a guy, you don't allow the freedom of the player to go, if, though. If I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm going to cap that player's earning potential. What I'm saying is, I want the team that has him to be able to exceed the cap without penalty if they choose to get into a bidding war. If, if for example, the the uh, Chiefs wanted to get into a bidding war to retain Tyreek Hill. And, and, you know, three other teams were willing to triple his salary. Well, if the Chiefs wanted to quadruple his salary, that's up to them. Let, let them exceed. Let them blow over the cap for four players on their roster. And if he's one of those guys, well, guess what? Tyreek Hill just made a ton of money because the Chiefs went crazy to keep him. What's the problem? You're no, always I have no fighting problem for the players the, all the time. I, I have fight no for problem. the organizations. I have no problem with the concept of birds' rights. I just think four there is a go. lot. I just right, think so four is a lot. That's I'll all. settle for three. That's my issue. I'll well, that's a lot, three. too. I, I, I'll meet you halfway, and I'll give you two. I'll give you two birds' rights players if you want to go over the cap to retain the rights of those. Fine. Four is fine. a lot. But, but the point is that gives you a, a much better opportunity to keep the core of your your fruits of your labor together, the guys who you tried to build this team around. So that's that's what I want to do. And I've I've already found a way now so that you can be with your pro player attitude, you can still get that player as much money as possible by by instituting bird rights into the NFL. So well, remember everybody's is, happy now. Well but keep in mind though there is also restricted free agency in the National Football League and that gives teams the flexibility to match and not lose a player as well so we can't dismiss that there are opportunities now granted a guy that's going to hit restricted free agency in all likelihood maybe hasn't reached stardom but there are a few guys that bust out early in their careers so there it are happens. some mannerisms and tools in place that you can utilize to make sure you don't lose a key player look that's here's the saying. bottom line okay you, you you like the way the system runs now. I liked it the way it was in the olden days. And the truth is, until somebody comes up with a a hybrid, then you're going to be you're in your way. I'm going to be in my way, and we're never really going to meet anywhere. That's just the way well, it is. We're not going to change okay. the cap anyway, regardless, because the cap is what it is. I, I highly doubt that they're going to make drastic changes, regardless of our recommendations. Just seeing it through a different lens. That's all it comes down to. Anyway, let's open up the phone lines once again. Scott is in New Mexico. He joins us. What's happening, Scott? Hi, guys. How you doing today? Hi. Doing right, Scott. What's on your mind? Uh, uh, I have a question. There's a plethora of receivers now for the Giants, and 
Daniel Jones already has a rapport with both uh, Darius Slayton and Sterling Shepard. I wanted to get your assessment of how much time you allot for for quarterbacks to develop a rapport with receivers first coming in. And just to make this sort of a crazy question, suppose, for example, you go through the first two preseason games and your star receiver that they just got, which is Kenny Galladay and Daniel Jones, are not connecting for whatever reason. Uh, do the Giants actually look to see uh, or, or, or will work on that or keep working that during the season so that the two of those types of receivers uh, will establish a rapport? Or do they look to somebody like John Ross or somebody and say Daniel Jones has a rapport, a better rapport with John Ross? Do the Giants, you know, look the other way and say, hey, you know, we're throwing better to these guys than to other guys, and those are the guys that are going to take the field, or it, or it really, they really want to get their stars on the roster and they really want to get them together? So I was wondering, in your opinion, and I'll take the question off the air. What's the time you allot for receiver and quarterback to develop the rapport? So obviously it's a cohesive unit. Uh, and uh, since they have so many, I was wondering how that would work for the Giants. And I'll take your answers off the air, guys. Thanks. All right, Scott. Appreciate the phone call. Well, I will say this. I'm certainly not bailing on a player after <laughs> the preseason session of a year. I will tell you that. Not I mean, to normally mention the when financial you... commitment, Lance. They've got of a course. lot invested in these guys. 100%. Yeah, I mean, money, we can't be naive. You have to take that into consideration. But normally, when you talk about time and chemistry, I'm operating, Paul, in seasons. I'm not operating in months or sections of a season. Right. I will say this. It's possible you go through a play in practice and you feel the quarterback has good rapport with a certain receiver, maybe they'll make a tweak on a play, and they'll say, we want to line this guy up here because we think we have a better matchup, and that will afford the quarterback to hit him on this play, and maybe we can make an explosive play in the game. That I don't think is crazy, but I don't see a player all of a sudden moving to the sideline or them sacrificing playing time for a player simply because maybe the chemistry hasn't clicked as quickly as they anticipated. I think you're talking about more alignment in plays, tweaks happen sooner rather than later, more so than drastic changes in terms of personnel and playing time. I would I would give you an example, and we're going to go back into the history books here just a little bit, that may provide some answer or clue to, uh, to his question. Number one, Plexico Burris comes to the Giants as a veteran free agent already had played a handful of years with Pittsburgh, lands with the Giants for the 2005 season, and in each of his first six games with the Giants, Daniel, uh, not Daniel Jones, but Eli Manning targeted him a minimum of 10 times a game. Right out of the blocks, he was the go-to guy, even though the Giants also had Amani Toomer on that team. There was no hesitation. Burris is here. He's going to be part of it, and he's going to be a major factor on that offense right from the very get-go. Uh, Victor Cruz, on the other hand, if you remember, a rookie in 2010, was on IR with the hamstring, you know, barely played, didn't have a lot of chemistry with Eli, comes back the 2011 season, and what happens in the first couple of games? Two targets against Washington, two targets against St. Louis, and then he has his breakout game in week three against Philadelphia. It's one of the plays that's in our 2011 championship bracket challenge that we are doing with the 10-year anniversary of that Super Bowl season, uh, in Philadelphia, he erupts. 
He catches a 70-something-yard touchdown catch. He has a, another, uh, no, I think, another touchdown pass for 28 yards. And then all of a sudden, the following week, Eli targets him nine times. The week after that, targets him 11 times. And all of a sudden now, Victor Cruz, after having this breakout game in week three, is now trusted by Eli Manning, and he is also now a big part of the offense. And so that's how these things work. A lot of times it's simply a matter of guy catches fire one week and boom. Oh, okay, we're going to keep feeding him until somebody stops him. And, 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 you know, so I don't know that, you know, Scott needs to necessarily be worried about this because Kenny Galladay is a guy who is going to get on that same page with Daniel Jones, whether it's week one or week four or week two, whatever week it's going to be. At some point, Galladay's going to be a very, very big part of this offense, probably a lot sooner than later. So I don't think he needs to worry about that. Well, because remember, Victor Cruz was also somewhat of an unknown still at that point in 2011. So Cruz, unlike Kenny Galladay, he wasn't entering a situation where, hey, this is going to be the guy. We're going to do everything we can to get you the football. And unfortunately, Cruz had the case of the dropsies, overcame that, and started making plays. And then by making plays, he carved out a bigger role. Galladay, I don't think, has the same type of narrative attached to him. He's more the Burris example. Exactly. 100%. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. But and the point again, is, let's say, if, you, if you produce, the coaches and the quarterback will have the confidence to get you the ball. And that's sure. why I, I cited Cruz, because he had that breakout game in Philly, and all of a sudden now he's a big part of the offense. Teams are not going to shy away from giving you the ball if you get it done. 100%, especially if they also know that, for example, Galladay has a track record of making those 50-50 catches, those contested catches. So let's say it doesn't happen in week one or week two. You don't all of a sudden abandon ship and say, well, this is not going to work. You try to work on it during practice, and you go back to the drawing board in week three, and you see whether or not you can get on the same page. Uh, some players have a little bit more leeway than others. If you take a guy from the practice squad, he's not building chemistry with Daniel Jones, yeah, maybe you make a quicker change. When it comes to your free agent splash, you're going to give him room to all of a sudden maybe break out in week three or week four if it doesn't happen immediately in week one. I think from player to player, it's going to vary based on money, based on track record. There's a lot of factors that go into that. No question. No question. We, We are totally in agreement on this. And that is going to wrap up Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody tuning in. We will be back up and running again on Tuesday at noon once again. A reminder that this is part of the Giants Podcast Network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul DeTito, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Stay locked to Giants.com. We will speak to you on Tuesday. Have a good one.